When I talk to property investors, they often tell me using debt is a key advantage over other asset classes. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rusk. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rusk Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rask AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Steve, welcome onto the Australian Finance Podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Now, you've had a pretty interesting life, and I know you've got some interesting stories to share with us today, but can you just give us a quick overview of who you are and what you do? Because you have a pretty cool job title. Yeah, so the job title, Futurist, there is one rule with that title. People need to call you that before you're allowed to call yourself that, <laughs> I think. And so my speaking agent said, you're a futurist. I said, am I? Okay, I'll, I'll run with it. Uh, but I've had a lot of businesses uh since the age of, I think, 12, I had my first business. I wrote my first lines of computer code at the age of 10. I've done a lot of experimental projects, uh, built and sold startups, worked in big corporate. Uh, I'm an economist by trade. That's what I studied at university. And in the last decade, I've basically invested my time in thinking, writing, and speaking about the future. So is that what a futurist is? That's what I do. Yeah. That's what I do. So, you know, I, I like to think a lot about anthropology, technology, and economics and the overlap of those three things. I express that in written form and spoken form, and I get paid by advising governments and businesses on how to adapt to the changing business landscape and adapting to technology. I can imagine a lot of them want to know what's going to happen with their businesses and their products and their customers. You know what's so interesting is that you can't predict what's going to happen to their business, but you know what you can predict with like extreme accuracy is what technology is going to arrive. Mm. It's actually very simple if you look at the various evolving forms of technology. They have like a, a pretty clear pattern of what's going to happen. Now, you can't predict the exact moment that a large language model or an iPhone will happen. But the idea of like the smartphone, Bill Gates had that in his early 90s book called The Road Ahead. He called it the smart wallet, right? So it's, it's easy to see what's going to come. Mm. Really hard to predict who the winner will be because the winner in technology is really about someone who adapts to it. It's not about predicting what's next. Or it's, uh, it's, it's not about having an advantage because you're the only person who has access to it. Actually, everyone has access to every important technology, but so many people and companies are too afraid to embrace it. That's fascinating. Is there any particular technology you're excited about right now? I'm, I think that AI has really hit you know, a fulcrum moment or, or a step change. Large language models 
really are extraordinary. I mean, they've only been around five years. This is what people don't understand. It was like an evolution in AI where we move towards machine learning and large language models. And I think the reason that they're so interesting is because they are semantic and linguistic based, what they do is that they can understand the gamut of human experience and they can horizontalize, which means that they can jump from one topic to another because the base of its learning prose is language and language is the fabric that holds together all knowledge in society. And so that's why we will potentially end up with artificial general intelligence and it can be applicable to so many realms. Most of the artificial intelligence we've had has been very narrow and specific. Your self-drive car has a certain set of rules that it follows or Google Maps has a certain set of rules or your social media algorithm feed has a certain set of rules and, and they can't be taken into a new context. But with language models, they can go to different contexts because it's language-based. I certainly want to come back to AI because it has taken the world by storm over <laughs> really the last has. few months. And I know a lot of listeners are probably wondering, what is it going to do to my job and my career? But I'd love to hear maybe about one of your extreme stories and experience <laughs> experiments, because I read a couple in your book and some of your work, and I think they're worth sharing. Yeah. I think the one that was most famous was I once built a Lego car, which doesn't sound all that impressive until I describe it. <laughs> So I, I, I built a, a Lego car, which was 500,000 pieces of Lego. The car was full size. You could drive it. It had an engine made of Lego. The engine ran on air and I crowdfunded the project on Twitter. Wow. And so that became a bit of a viral sensation. Um, it's had hundreds of millions of views around the world. Um, Actually, I only still had, got the car. It's in my dad's garage. If anyone wants to come for a drive, just hit me up. We'll just go for a drive, and if it crashes, we'll just rebuild it. It's fine. So, <laughs> yeah, that that project was. Uh, I collaborated with forty people from Melbourne, and a, a kid from Romania who's a genius who came up with the engine design, and then we collaborated on building some of the other parts of it. And uh, yeah, that was just a, an interesting project, just to see what's possible. Because I, I think when you experiment. You uncover insights that can't happen inside a corporation unless a company has like a skunk works or you know, a research division, which are really uncommon these days other than a few of the big tech companies. But most companies stop doing that you know, in the economic rationalization era. And so you can learn things that just can't be learned uh, working inside a corporation. And so that's what I like to do just to see what it uncovers. Mm. It was interesting. I was talking to someone the other day about the the idea of being an inventor and how you yeah. learn about all these inventors in the past, but no one today says yeah. they're an inventor. No, they don't. It's actually an interesting word, isn't it? An inventor. I mean, we have lots of inventors, but you just don't use that word. It's, it's so interesting that we're talking about language because language sort of defines what we believe and what we do. Uh, but I think that there was more attention on someone doing something that was interesting and they would invent something. And you have that in the enclaves of Silicon Valley. But it seems as though what's important these days for, for most clever people is they just want attention more than they want invention, mm. right? And, and that's kind of sad, right? Because you get this race to the bottom where people are more concerned about, oh, how many people liked this thing or saw this thing? And so what you do is you appeal to human weakness, human frailty, which is, you know, fear or or extremism, rather than actually creating something that might benefit people, you're more likely to do something that it's like a car smash. People just want to watch it. And so I think that a fair bit is on society's shoulders that we don't see that many inventors. Yeah. I, I mean, I like the idea and I like the word and I've been studying intellectual property law mm. recently and it's fascinating reading some of these older cases from 50 or 100 years ago about different inventions. It's just got me thinking about it a lot. And I know you started and sold a startup kind of before it was all cool to be talking about it on Twitter. I know yeah. building in public is very popular now and yeah. the idea of unicorns and having a million Twitter followers. Are you able to share a bit about your startup journey and maybe yeah, some of the sure. changes you've seen? You know, I, I mean, I've had a lot of startups. I mean, at the end, I, there's, there's a really important thing I want to talk about on what businesses are for. But let, let me just tell you about my first journey is that I grew up in a marginal household on a farm. We didn't have a lot of money at all. Mm. And 
I didn't want to get rich. I just did what I could do. My first startup was an organic egg farm when I was 12. And I went out and my dad gave me $12 to buy, this sounds weird, secondhand <laughs> chooks. So they have to teach everyone here about egg farming that they might not know is that a first year layer and a hen will lay one egg a day. But once they're after, once they're two or three years old, they only lay an egg every second day. So you can get these chooks really cheap, like for a dollar, right? And they'll, they're not good enough for the proper egg farm. So I took them and I built a little hatch where I had them and I fed them and I bought grain and I fed the eggs and then I would sell the eggs to family and friends for like $1.35 at the time it was. And I would undercut the supermarkets, which were about $2 because I would do all the labor myself. And I turned into a little business and I made a lot of money, enough to buy BMXs and do different things. <laughs> and it taught me a lot. And then I eventually worked out you don't even need to feed the chooks if you let them out on the grass. They'll eat bugs and that's free. And I'm like, oh, that's organic. So that's even better. <laughs> so I put the price up because it's organic. And I like hacked the system, but it wasn't to sell a business. Like this is the thing that is interesting is everyone wants to build a business to sell it. And I reckon that's broken and wrong. I reckon that's one of the worst things that we've seen in society with the startup ethic is I want to build something, get funded, get a photo of me in the financial review standing in front of a brick wall with my arms folded. <laughs> There's so many oh, brick wall photos. Yeah, it's like brick wall. It's like, yeah, you know, startup XYZ just raised a million dollars. They're great startup founders. No, they're not. They just got a boss. If you're a serious entrepreneur, you don't you don't want to be funded by someone. You want to self-fund and you want to make money and you want to keep the business. Now, these people who go out and get a venture capitalist, you just got a boss. Venture capital should be only if the expansion modality is that's the only way to pay for the funding for the machinery or something like that. That's the true venture capital, which I'm doing. That's a whole story. We'll get to that later. But 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 no, but a real business, I just wanted to make money. And to have a lifestyle where I could afford the things that I wanted to buy and have a business, like a business. So that, that was the first one. And then I had a clothing company, which I, uh, when I was working, I was working in marketing roles after I graduated from uni. And I would design and make clothes with my brother. And then I'd go to like a factory that made t-shirts like in Brunswick and get them made and then sell them at lunchtime and then do the paperwork at night and sell them on weekends. And I did that. And I sold the company to someone else like after when I'd sort of finished what I was done with it. So I made money out of that. And then my third startup was a software startup in the early 2000s. I, again, I could write code. So I, I um, built a business which was called rentoid.com. And uh, that was like an eBay for renting. Didn't really succeed uh, in the way that I thought it would, people renting things to and from each other because there was too much friction. But I ended up selling it to a car rental business, to a public company, hmm. because they bought my software engine, which is really an interesting insight, is sometimes the wood chips are more valuable than the table. And I call that wood chipping, right? <laughs> you, 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 you're making something and you're making this thing over here and it didn't quite turn out the way you wanted, mm -hmm. but the wood chips, which was my software platform, yeah. was more valuable than the thing I was trying to build and I made more money out of that. So it was a third startup uh, that I had and I've had a few others in and around that have failed. I had a couple, I had a surfing startup, which was like a social media thing for surfers and that, that failed and had a few other losses along the way, but they're, they're the main ones that I've had. Yeah. It's interesting because a lot of us don't talk about our failures along the way and you, plenty see, of those. you see the very no, public seriously. success, but you don't see all the, all the challenges along the journey. Yeah. You've actually got to want to do it and almost not care. Like there's something powerful and beautiful. It's like, if you say to yourself, oh, why are you doing that? If you're doing it to make money, I mean, I'm, an, I'm a raving capitalist and I want to make money, right? I don't pretend to be saving the world. Right? This is what I'm not going to I'm not going to tell anyone on this podcast that I'm pretending to save the world, right? I'll leave that to people who are nicer than me. But like, I, I, I seriously want to make money. But that's not why I do it. I do it to do it because I like it. Like if I like something, it's easy to get through the hard times if you genuinely like what you're building. It's kind of, it's okay. It's fun. Actually, on the chickens, can I just tell you yeah, something absolutely. about the chickens? We, we, now that we're on chickens. See, my dad... Is, a, is an Italian farmer. And he taught me more about business and finance than any economics book I ever, ever saw. Right? And he gave me an idea for, a, for a, you know, another book as well. But he said that, he said, life is a lot like chickens. What, what you've got to do is, is that live on the eggs and never the chook. Because right? if you eat the chook, it's over. Yep. 
You can live on the eggs and there's plenty of protein in that and you're going to get an egg every day. He said, every now and again, let one hatch. All right? And if you let enough hatch, you can eventually eat a chook, but don't always eat the chook. And so this is a metaphor for yield and growth and selling and the asset base. And everything that we need to know about business, you can see in nature if you'll only pay attention. And all of the parlance that we have in finance and business is farming and agriculture parlance. Growth, yield, seasonality, it's all there. And if you'll pay attention to those principles, which are time immemorial, you will do better than reading the AFR. Sorry, AFR people. <laughs> I love that. We often think things have to be a lot more complicated than they need to be. And I know a lot of us think we need to keep learning about the next thing and the next thing, where even when we talk about personal finance and investing, it can be quite simple if you know the basics. It's always simple. Here's the thing is that complexity favors the rich and complexity is invented on purpose to extract money from people. Yeah. <laughs> we just have to pause because that's, that's a poignant moment. It is, it is. And poignant. we know it's true. And everyone who sells complex things knows it's true. I mean, consulting, right? I do a fair bit of consulting, right? And, and the statement with consulting is that consultants steal your watch and then tell you the time. Because you know. I mean, often what people are really buying is someone to hold their hand. That's what we buy because we're scared and we're frail humans and we just want someone to hold your hand through things. But when it comes to finance, if you have simple principles and stick to those, there is no doubt you will be rich the end. Like, you will be rich. The problem is that people can't stick to it. The only way you'll be poor is if there's a nuclear war. Other than that, if you just have basic investing principles and stick to them over the long term, becoming wealthy is inevitable. And I'm talking about people who live in, a, of course, a democratic and wealthy country. That's the caveat there. Mm. When we're talking about long-term thinking, what are some of those technology changes that are probably happening under our noses right now? And I know you're probably going to talk about AI. Mm. You know, the, the first one is actually we're going through an energy transition, which is probably bigger than the AI. And so the most profitable thing that was ever invented was fossil fuels. It's extraordinary profit just pulling something out of the ground and just selling it for an inordinate amount of money, right? Like that is basically the modern economy is based on fossil fuels. The fact that 1% of our population of farmers, it used to be before the Industrial Revolution, more than 90% of people worked in food production. Just think that through, right? Everything else that we have, everything in this room is made of stuff that came out of the ground, which which isn't possible without fossil fuels. To extract yeah. the raw materials and you know to create the plastics and the bits and pieces and the silicon and everything that we have is based on that. But we're moving from fossil fuels to electricity. It's going to be an all-electric economy. And we have all of the technology that we need right now to move to a carbon-free environment. Like all of it, all of it exists, all of the technology. What we don't have is the desire from politicians and companies to move towards that because it's profitable for them. Yeah. So the energy transition is probably the biggest one uh, by a long shot. I think the second biggest thing that we're living through is for the first time in human history, labor and location can be separate. I, I want to explain that. And, and I had it in my second book, The Lesson School Forgot is that if you look at the history of labour, it's always been defined by the tool of the day. So hunter and gatherers, you have a spear, that's your main tool and your mobile, and you have to follow the herd and follow the seasons to, to eat. Uh, then during the agricultural era, we have the shovel. And so that's when we settle down in little communities and we master agriculture. And so the shovel is our tool and we live and work and eat where we are. Then during the industrial revolution, it becomes the spanner and so we all move to the cities en masse and we are no longer directly involved in the food production. We start to get involved in manufacturing and transport and related industries, which really essentially support the idea of the factory, let's say. And then now silicon is our major tool of production. But this is where it's really, really different. For the first time in human history, labor and location can be separate. Right, at first, it's information work, but you know, even in the long run, we could have exoskeletons and uh, artificial intelligence that can do everything from make food to coffee to whatever. And we can literally live wherever we want to live. And we haven't realized that yet. 
And that's why we have a housing crisis. That's why we have fossil fuels being used too much for transport and all of these things, right? And if we would just embrace that and spread out, then there's enough resources to go around. But we're, we're stuck in this mindset of lo location centricity where we can have this diaspora if, if we choose. So that mm. I think is the second big shift. And then the third one, which you mentioned is AI, which then facilitates the second one as well, where we're essentially building I think the next life force. I think the big question everyone's probably thinking is, is AI going to take my job? I know people were talking about that in the office even this morning that they were worried about that. Well, the short answer is yes, it's going to take your job. And if you don't think it's going to take your job, then you're not thinking hard enough. And already AI has taken a lot of people's jobs. And the easy way to think about it is there's not that many bison hunters around anymore. Right. And jobs are always in a state of flux where jobs are dropping out and new jobs are coming in. Let's think about a decade ago, there was no such thing as an app developer. Well, why was there no such thing as an app developer? Well, because there wasn't a smartphone and there was no such thing as a UX designer. Well, why was that? Because there was no such thing as the internet. And so all of those jobs have already arrived and they're a function of AI that they're possible or various forms of computational intelligence. But then if we go back further there's a whole lot of jobs that have dropped out along the way and it doesn't happen in one big chunk mm. like we always think like it's ai day everyone okay pack up you're out like like, like it's going to happen next tuesday yeah. it never happens like that it's so rare it, I, I don't i can't think of a time in history ever where that's happened and i, I study history more than i study the future because i think you learn more from history than you do from the future because the future you don't know but history we know what happened and uh, jobs are always coming and going. You know, I can remember when I grew up, there was tram conductors and bus conductors that were gone. What about like ticket booth operators, uh, at, you know, in, at car parking stations? There's a lot of jobs which already now you just swipe your phone, right? But, but the world didn't end. No. But it is important that, that governments and people realise that. I mean, everyone says, oh, what should I invest in? They ask me a lot, even though I was a futurist. <laughs> I get asked, and I give them the same answer every single time, and it's not a stock. I say, invest in yourself. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's fascinating because we often get sort of obsessed that AI is going to, or any technology is going to just disrupt all of our jobs immediately. And I know we have only been thinking about it for the last few months, especially on social mm. media as it's blown up. But as you said, these things happen slowly over time yeah. as companies figure out how to incorporate this technology and what the company will look like in the future. Well, that's interesting, right? Because what happens is, is that it's really hard, especially given information work is never one thing. See, if it's if it's one thing, like you're the ticket stub person who rips that ticket stub, yeah, you're going to be replaced. If What people need to think about is how singular is my task and how repetitive. So if it's singular and repetitive, yeah, you're going to be replaced. But most office workers have a multitude of tasks that they can do. And as you know, there's like a hundred AI tools, you know, landing every day. I was keeping a list of all the latest AI tools on my website. I just stopped now because this is like, it's like <laughs> three hundred a day now. I just can't keep up. I'm like, I, I should put on my website uh, for a latest list of available AI tools. Just Google that, all right? Because I can't keep up. Google can, all right? There's an AI that can do a better job than me on that. But so you'll have tasks that'll be automated, right? So ChatGPT can go and do a whole lot of things that you might have done yourself, like forecasting or sales or write this sales email where it can do some of those things better th than you. And so what you do is then you just go further down your task list and get to more things. Like, so we already have that. And so I think tasks go away more than jobs, especially when you have a variety of things that you need to do within your employment context. If someone wanted to know a bit more about AI and actually get to know how it could help them in their job instead of take away their job, where would you even start? I would just start with a Google search. Yeah, just try What it. things should finance brokers know about AI? I promise you there is someone that already has a YouTube video or a blog or you know, someone has written that up and it's there to be had. Like, this is the thing, like, People are like, where do I start? You just start on Google. Just say, actually, you know where you should start? Start on ChatGPT. Hey, ChatGPT, what should I be worried about with ChatGPT that might take away my job? <laughs> and it's already got the answer in there. Like it's like this circular reference 
you actually just search for it and say, what things should a accountant know or a lawyer mm. or a, and then you'll see it. And, and like every other time with technology, technology is kind of like a shovel, right? And this new shovel's arrived. Now you can stand in the hole and someone can bury you or you can actually put soil down underneath you and stand on top of it and stand on top of it. You're using the tool to rise a layer above. That's the art form. That's the art form. Because there'll always be something that AI can't know because AI is us. We are the AI. This is what people don't understand. It, it can only draw from databases which we created. So we create all the inputs. Because I know when yes. the, the image creation, was it late last year, blew up? It's yeah, the image image creation. Yeah. From all over the internet that have already been created. Exactly. And and the reason that it can create those images is because you described them. That's actually what people don't realize. It's the description that actually creates the AI. Because the description underneath it, we call it meta tagging, enables the AI to learn a pixel pattern. So there's patterns of pixels. And I'll give you I'll give you a really do you want to hear a weird example about yep. AI and image detection? So there's do you know how like the internet's got a lot of cats on it? Do you know about that? Ah, oh, probably seen a few. Yeah, there's just in case you didn't know, there's 13.4 billion cat videos on the internet right now. Because <laughs> look, I check this up. Look, I check cats. this up daily. This is kind of how I roll. I mean, I don't know how other people get their kicks. Oh, you just checking this the daily cat. This is how I get my. Yeah, I check okay. the daily cat video count, right? And 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 weirdly, there's an AI engine called Is This a Cat? dot com. And so, and so what you do is you put an image of a cat on this site and it tells you yes or no. <laughs> Don't worry, there's a point to this story. Okay. <laughs> so I've done that and I've put up pictures of soft toy cats and lions and everything and it'll get it because it gets a feline as a cat and a soft toy as a cat or whatever. But I drew a picture once of like, you know, like how a, like a, a grade one kid might draw a cat with like two pointy ears and like a curly tail and yeah. just like a face and what and like like that with just like a single pen. Like you can visual, can, I hope everyone can visualize what I'm describing. <laughs> I put that up and said, is this a cat onto this engine? And it said no. And here's why. Do you want to know why? Why? So simple. It's because no one would have drawn a picture like that and put it on the internet and described it as a cat. Or if they did, there wasn't enough of them. There wasn't a highest, a high enough number of cats drawn that way and tagged as a cat mm -hmm. for the engine to know that it's a cat. And the pixel pattern it wouldn't have been similar enough to the high resolution pictures and videos of cats. So it couldn't crowdsource the, the, the answer. Yeah. So, so, so that is like a really, really strong insight on how this stuff works. Mm. So we really have to put all the information up there. That's right. It can only learn from what we put. Now, eventually the AI will start to put up its own data and learn from its own data. And that's when you get into a, a spiral that could end up in a singularity or, or a, an artificial superintelligence event. <laughs> I'm just thinking bit, of Marvel movies here and the, the artificial intelligence that went evil. Well, I mean, it is inevitable because here's the thing is that artificial intelligence is biological. It's not wet code. It's dry code. So you have wet code and dry code. Wet code is a biological being like a tree or an animal or a okay. human. Yep. And dry code is computational, which is based on often on switches and electricity, which is where digital information comes from. But artificial intelligence is biological because it was created by biological beings with, with their insight and the inputs from the earth where it then can spawn something else until it eventually can recreate versions of itself. And so it's really just an evolution of the species on the planet and, and will no longer be the alpha species once that is spawned. Slightly terrifying. <laughs> just is, you know, like just is. I mean, it's just like you don't get a choice. It's like evolution just happens and this is part of the evolutionary process and evolution actually speeds up as if it's a bit like a Moore's law. So if you look at every epoch of human existence, every like period of humanity, you know, way back through the 200,000 years since our species, you know, Homo sapiens has been around, each of those periods actually only lasts for about half as long as the previous one. It's going to be fascinating to watch what happens. Fascinating. So, I mean, this is a movie, man. Forget Marvel. Just lock in and just watch humans. That's the movie to watch. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. And you talked a bit about investing in yourself and that's mm. the most important investment you should be making. If we want to, if someone is in their 20s or 30s or 40s right now, still has a few decades left in the workforce. I thought you were going to say a few decades left on earth. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. I hope no, 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 no. we still get a long life yeah, uh, before AI takes over. But 
if if someone wants to just stay on top and being proactive and experiment with their career and make sure they're doing something that just doesn't become obsolete, where would you recommend okay. starting? So the first thing is you've got to stay with the classics, especially when it comes to finance and investing. You know, the best finance book I ever read, and it's not even close, was The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. I mean, if you haven't, like it's a hard read. It is a, a very dense book. It's a very hard read. The, actually, the annotated version of it is really great. It's about mm-hmm. 900 pages, but it's worth it. Um, that is a classic. It's it's all time. Um, I think Peter Lynch's uh, One Up on Wall Street is really good for value investors. Uh, and I think a random walk down Wall Street is great for those who are index fund believers, which I am. Uh, they're, they're really great. Cla- they're classics. And you stay with the classics. Um, I think where you get your news from is is really important. Like, see, the internet is like a supermarket where you have these aisles that you can walk down. And the most attractive aisles are filled with junk food for the brain. Right? You've got to go into the – and it's a lot like a supermarket where 90% of the aisles in the supermarket are junk or frozen or they've got sugar added, you know. I mean, I guess algorithms are the MSG of the internet age, right? Just and getting so, stuck in TikTok loops Right, for hours TikTok on loops end. of stuff which is tasty – but has no intellectual nutrition. Mm. We're going to be wise. Here we are. It's crazy, right? Here we are with all the world's knowledge from all the world's greatest thinkers available for you for free the moment it happened. Let's watch someone dance, baby. Like, <laughs> like just think that through. Like, imagine that. Our grandparents will be rolling in their graves. It's like, oh, our forefathers and sisters are just going to be like, what are you doing? Like, we have all the world's knowledge. So you've got to be... You've got to be diligent on what you consume because what you put in your brain is at least as important as what you put in your stomach, right? And we had sort of 50 years of the food industrial complex to teach us what good and bad food looks like. But you know what? There isn't much of a discussion on what good and bad information looks like. And we talk a bit about fake news and that kind of stuff. But seriously, like I'm really – I'm thrilled. I just watch nerdy stuff. Like you can – watch nerdy documentaries on YouTube and listen to great intellectual podcasts like this one and 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 really have this inordinate advantage over 90% of the world because they're not doing it because they're, they're lazy, right, and they just want to be entertained. Guess what? Everyone wants to be entertained. But if you focus on what you consume, I reckon that's 90% of the battle, really. Read well uh, and consume high-quality content. And the advantage on that investing in yourself is extraordinary. And don't gamble either. Mm. And that's, that's the other thing too. Most investors think they're investors. They're just gamblers. And that's how I, how I say you become the 1%. I call it the new 1%. Because here's what happens. 90% of people don't invest outside of their super. 90%. Something like that. And then of those that invest, 90% of those gamble and think they're investors because they're trading. And I know that the listeners will know that most people that trade end up behind. They don't beat the S&P 500, mm. right? So then let's say you're, first of all, you're investing. So you're in, the, you're in the top 10% and then you're not one of the gamblers. You're in the top 1% by default just by being boring. Yeah. I think a lot of our listeners would fall into that that category um, because most of us are investing for the long term. We're investing in pretty basic, diversified ETF portfolios. We're not doing anything too crazy and we're focusing on the rest of our lives. Exactly. Well, for me, it's like people say, oh, what happened to the market? I say, I don't care. I don't have to because I don't care what happened yesterday or tomorrow. Like, is Woolworths worth more today because it went up in value than it was last week? No. Like, this is the old Charlie Munger, Mr. Market. It's like, don't let Mr. Market trick you. I want to talk a bit more about that information diet because I I think it's fascinating because even just studying at the moment, I see more and more people struggling to watch longer form lectures or read long chapters in textbooks. And I mean, I've got a hunch that it's things like TikTok and Reels that mm. are really shortening our attention span. And do you, do you think it's changing the way we communicate with each other? And- yeah, it really has. I mean, we've really, we had soundbite culture for, for quite a while with you know advertising, 30 seconds at a time, brand building. But it's really been exacerbated since the smartphone because the ability to see something else that's available is so simple. I mean, even you could click around TV and there's three or four channels or even 50 if you have uh, cable TV. But attention spans 
are in rapid decline. Mm -hmm. I think the average video on YouTube gets watched for, I think, 1.6 seconds now. And so then you even see a change in the way that information is portrayed, whether it's on TikTok or YouTube or anywhere. It's like you've got to keep them. Every two seconds, you've got to have a flip. You've got to have a twist because people have really short attention spans. And I don't think it's good for society to have short attention spans because if you have short attention spans, by default, you're not digesting large chunks of information and making considered decisions. It actually gets you into a rapid decision flow where if you don't have enough depth of what you're understanding before you make your mind up on something, then it's really hard to put those pieces of the puzzle together. I mean, if you're wise, you can stand back and see the collage of what's happening, but most people don't think that way. So I think attention spans declining is a real problem. It's going to be a problem for society that bubbles out in other arenas. But what we need to do is if we know about it, it's like you need to know about it on purpose and make the opposite decision. Like you need to go against the tide in that area. It's kind of funny. I say go with the tide with investing and just let the ETFs do the work for you. But when it comes to attention and knowledge, you actually need to go against the tide. And it's a lot like with exercise and food. It's the same thing. It's like slow food we know is better than fast food. Well, slow information is going to be way better than fast information. And it can be really hard at the start because you have to sit down and go, how am I going to read something for more than half an hour? And it can feel really hard to not let those distractions take you away and to yeah. really focus. Well, it's discipline, right? And, and then so if you know that there's distractions, how do you remove them? It's like you have this uh, Faustian bargain with yourself where you put junk food in the fridge in the cub and you say, I won't eat it. But we know that. So you know when I love carbohydrates? in the house, you're 11 done. 11 p.m. is my favorite time. I can be so great all day and I just crumble. Now, if they're not in the house, I can't crumble. Yeah. So you've got to remove the distractions. So like it's a real disciplinarian process that you need. And some people just go, just too hard. Yeah, the large majority of society just say, just too hard. I just can't do it. I wish I had the discipline. That's why. And and, and this is not to be dismissive. You know, the, the reason that we, we have you know, quite an obese society now in Australia and America and whatever is because it's easy to blame society and automation and the food, but we still get to make decisions. We're adults and you have the ability to make the decisions if you want to. No one said it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's possible. And guess what? You have the dignity of choice. You have the dignity of choice to eat what you want to eat, and you have the dignity of choice of whether or not you want to exercise, and you have the dignity of choice whether or not you want to read uh, high-quality content and remove distractions. We all have the dignity of choice. But, you know, it comes down to one of the basic human principles. Are you disciplined enough or not? It's really just that. I'll probably get hate mail for this. Please don't send me hate mail. I'm trying to be positive here, people. <laughs> we we really do underestimate those small daily steps that we can yeah. take that are positive and how they add up over time. We think, oh, well, I can only exercise once this fortnight, so there's no point. Well, there is a point. I had a – well, you know, I, I I work out every single day, right, and I surf a lot, and I'm, I'm lucky that I like it. But, you know, I, it was recently in about, about three years ago at the start of COVID, I hadn't really worked out that much. I wasn't in as good shape as I am, and I – was in my gym and I was talking to uh, one of the trainers there and he's really super fit and everything. And I said, he said, I haven't seen it in a week. I said, I haven't had time. He said, even if you've got three minutes on that day, do the three minutes. I'm like, wow. It was like a moment in time. Like I should know this. And he told me that. He's like, three minutes is enough. Just do three. He says, if you've got one minute, just do one. And there's something really beautiful about that. And we talk about in investing compound interest, but he talked about compound effort. And I love that because you do that one little piece and then the next piece and, and then your self-esteem sort of builds to when you get this energy underneath. You go, well, I did 10 minutes. It's worth it. Yeah. You know, and then tomorrow I might be able to do 11, but let's just do 10, just do 10. And then you know what happens. You end up just doing more. Because it really challenges that why bother attitude that you yeah. can fall into when you might only have $5 to put away today. Or you might only have five minutes, as you said, to exercise, but it's it's doing it when even when you don't feel like doing it and those small things really add it's up. It's funny that you know, Brian Tracy is one of the great life finance coaches. He's one of the old school guys from the 70s and the 80s. <laughs> and he said, you know, the difference between successful people and unsuccessful people, people often think that successful people like doing the things that unsuccessful people don't like doing. And he said, that's not true. He said, successful people don't like doing those things either, but they do them anyway. Mm. Even when it's not fun. It's not fun. It's not fun for anyone. 
It's actually not. And so you just got to do it anyway. And on the on the theme of success, I'm really interested in the idea of redefining our own definition of success because we've done away with that typical path where you go to from school to uni <laughs> to buying your first home to marriage. Most of us might not do those things mm. ever or not do them in that order. And how do we look at creating our own paths? Because often they differ from the paths our parents took and sometimes that can cause friction. Yeah, it's such a good question. I had it in the book as well. And and I and I'm gonna quote someone else to Earl Nightingale, who did one of the first ever like I think motivational LPs. It was on an LP for you kids out there who don't know what that is. It's this it's this black circle that spins around <laughs> with this little thing on it and you can hear it. Anyway, that was a joke for the old people as well. Anyway, so he said that success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. Okay. So Progressive realization. It's not a destination. That means that you're you're on a path towards something. Worthy. Well, who's it worthy to? Worthy to you, I think, is the first thing. And ideal. It's where you want to end up. You might not get there. And I love that definition. So success is an internal measure. Like, I hate it when someone says, oh, have you seen Mary? She's so successful. I go, well, how do you know? I saw her driving a Ferrari. (laughs) Well, well, what if she wanted a Lamborghini and she didn't get it for her? Maybe she's not. You can't judge someone's success based on what you think. And it's certainly not necessarily a financial measure. You can know people who are successful financially and have a poor family circumstance. Or you can see someone who isn't financially well off, but are healthy and have a family that love them and enjoy you know, certain pastimes. I mean, how do you define success? It's an internal measure. I mean, and so long as what you're doing isn't hurting anyone else, then I think it's fair to say that your success should be what you want it to be. But I think we actually need to sit down and be honest and say, what am I trying to do here? Mm. Like we don't even do that. We actually just go into these autopilot modes doing what society says we should do. I don't care what society says I should do. Like I could probably earn more money in a corporate world than I do now doing what I do, but I get to go surfing three times a week, right? And the one thing I know I'll never get back is time. Can't buy more of that. No amount of money buys that. We all get 24 hours a day. It's the great equaliser. It's very hard to work out what your own internal measure is, though, because we get so distracted by the external measures. Yeah, and it probably changes over time. So you need to say, well, what am I actually aiming for? You know, I'm aiming for more courage this year. That's one of my internal measures of Mm -hmm. success this year. I want to be more courageous and tell people what I really think. No, I really do. And I'm still not where I want to be. You know, often I'm in corporations and I'm telling them what they want to hear. Imagine if I'd, yeah, I'd probably be more successful if I actually just said, you know what, let me tell you what you should be doing <laughs> and actually just really <laughs> drop some truth bombs. I'd, you know, that'd probably, I'd probably go better. So at the moment, you know, this year for me, courage is the thing that I, I'm going to define my success on. It's not even a number or a thing or a sport or a whatever. That's like a measure. But your measures change over time. You need to have the courage to look at them and visit them and make sure you're chasing what you want. I like that. And I like the idea of using a value to something you work towards for the year rather than just this is my net worth goal or this is my item I goal. I have those too. Yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. Are they second tier? I don't know. It changes over time. It really does. Um, look, the reason is that it doesn't matter whether you major in economics. Economics is always major because that's the fabric that holds society together. Right, so you you need that. You need to, you know, you can't avoid it. You're an economic participant, even if you don't want to be. So that's kind of almost like the conditions that we operate in. And and tying it all together, if we're thinking about the future and our role in it, and how we want to create our own lives, if someone's feeling a bit like, oh, it's all so unknown, I'm a bit nervous, apprehensive. What would you say to that person? It's a, it's, it's a really tough question. I think if you, you're suffering from like what I call, call chasing rabbit syndrome, I call it, it's all of my analogies from the farm, right, growing up on the farm, is that if there's a whole heap of rabbits that you're trying to catch, you won't catch any. I remember my dad years ago, he gave me an example. He said, oh, look, in that tree, there was like this box thorn bush that had all these rabbits in it. He's, my dad said, I'm going to throw a rock in there and all the rabbits will come out. How many do you think the dog will catch? I go, I don't know, but you'll definitely catch one. He said, yeah, we'll see. And he threw the rock in there and like tens and you know dozens of rabbits started running out and my dog just ran around in circles, didn't know what to do. That's what we're like. So the simplest thing you can do if you're overwhelmed with everything 
is say, okay, if there was one thing I could do this day, this week, this year, just one thing, what would it be? Like, don't have a to-do list. Have a to-do thing. To-do lists are a disaster. I have them, I know. Believe me, they're a disaster. <laughs> have a to-do thing. Right? And, and then if you get that thing done, you go, wow, and then you feel good. And you go, okay, what's the next thing? Actually, we use that in technology too. We call it um, agile development. Instead of having like this waterfall of things that we need to go through to get things done, we just go, what's the next thing I can do on this? Okay, just do that. And everything else doesn't matter until that's done. And then what's the next thing I can possibly do? So have a to-do thing, not a to-do list. I like that. Yeah, something that I use personally is like, what is the next best step I can take yeah. for this particular goal idea. or task? And try not to think too far ahead. Because sometimes when you jump 10 steps ahead, it can feel really overwhelming and you can just stop and be paralyzed from doing anything. Yeah, there's a real tyranny of choice right now, uh, whether or not it's deciding what to watch on Netflix, because there's only 7.6 trillion shows to choose from. And who knows how you can, I mean, gee, we haven't got enough shows. I wish there was just three. It would make it so much easier yeah, to choose one. these are your three. You've got your comedy, your horror, and your three shows, right? Just choose one, all right? Netflix have given up. They've even given up so much that they've got a button on there that now says, don't know what to watch. Like, they've given up too. It's like, <laughs> more choice is not better. Yeah. Right, so there's a real tyranny of choice. So just remove those. You have to, again, it's, geez, it's so interesting how it all comes down to discipline, doesn't it? Mm. Which is so boring, yeah, isn't it? You wouldn't think that discipline is part of the solution. Yeah, you think it's AI. It's AI. Everyone, the answer is AI and getting ahead of the curve. No, it's not. It's actually what it's always been. Because the things that matter haven't changed in 200,000 years. I mean, just like our, our brains, right? We're running a 200,000-year-old piece of software in our brains called the human DNA. Hasn't changed in 200,000 years. And yet we're looking for new answers. No, they're the same as the old answers. The enduring riches, things like you know discipline and harmony in human relations and all of those things. All the things that money can't really buy. 100%. Steve? We've covered so much in today's conversation and I think and I hope it'll be motivating to listeners to really focus on looking forward with optimism and thinking about how they can take actionable steps to to not let the future happen to them and to be part of it. But what would be the number one thing you want to leave listeners with today? I think the thing is that we get the dignity of choice. Right? If you're listening to this podcast, you've got a smartphone, you're in one of the richest countries in the world. You have the dignity of choice, right? If you are smart enough to read, to read, you have all the intellectual capability to become whatever you want to become and have whatever life you want to have. But it's not going to happen unless you do it on purpose. You have to do it on purpose. You have to be disciplined. But you have the choice because you've got all the tools. And positivity is a choice as well. Because there's downsides and upsides with everything. And you'll be as happy as you want to be right now. You can always say, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when. There'll always be a when. Just choose to be happy now and make the right choices. And those two things will feed each other. And sometimes you might have to choose between a few hard choices. They won't always be great options. but And you won't miss those things that you chose against. It'll be okay. Well, Steve, if people want to learn a bit more about you, get in touch about your Lego car or grab your book, where should they go? They should go to stevesamatino.com. You can find me there. Send me an email. Got a contact there. You can email me there. I'll tell you what, me at stevesamatino.com. Send me an email. I get back to everyone within 24 hours. should totally get me into do a keynote speech at your conference. You'll love it on tech. Just get it. It'll be amazing. But uh, and you can find me on all the social channels. LinkedIn and Instagram and TikTok. So send me a follow, send me an email, say hello, and uh, be surprised. So many people I've met who heard me on TV or radio or podcasts and people are like, oh, wow, I can't believe you got back to me. Well, I do. And that's kind of how we connect and who knows what projects. Maybe we'll make a crazy project together. Who knows? You might have the next great idea for, for Steve's experiment. And I know you've got a few really interesting videos on your TikTok channel. So that's worth a follow if you're going to be on the platform anyway. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming onto the Finance Podcast today and sharing some of your wisdom and experiences with my audience. I oh, really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit Get Started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no-obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.